Understanding Black Britain. This easy listening podcast series is designed to help you understand the history of racism, what racism looks like today, the lived experience, how racism affects us, what makes us an activist, who are our allies, and why did they take up the arms in the anti racism struggle. My name is Oliver Evans, and I am a community and race relations activist. There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if we could become something more. So when they needed us, we could fight the battles that they never could. Episode 3 The Lived Experience. In this episode, we're going to look at how lived experience plays a huge and vital part in bringing inclusion to equality and diversity. People with a lived experience of racism are critical to inform the widespread changes necessary to save lives, reduce emotional anguish and empower people to live. My experience from uh, racism it's varied throughout time, to be honest. Um, you know, you get it from different people. You know, I'd, my mind, I'd say more predominantly now, it's more from patients. How I saw racism growing up is who I was receiving it from. I spent a lot of my teenage years almost trying to block it out, almost trying to say to myself, nah, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. Racism doesn't exist. I grew up exist. in a city, I... a very multicultural city, where my school had more ethnic minorities, black and Asian people. So growing up, I didn't really know much about race. These lived experiences are a powerful enabler for driving some of the greatest positive change against stigmatising attitudes and cultures. But what is it all about? For the last 10 years, I and people like me have implored others to take into account a person's lived experience in relation to race and other diversity agendas. And finally, 2020 saw an awakening of friends, family, business leaders and CEOs as to the importance of valuing lived experience. In relation to race, it's hearing how racism is experienced by an individual and the impact of racism on a person's daily life. I could be in the supermarket um, with potentially my little brother, so there's two of us, and you can you always know when you're being followed um, in in supermarkets by security and stuff like that. And it just it's when it it's when it becomes the norm is actually a, a huge problem. Like that's that's what I feel like my problem is. It's these things became so normal. I've spent so much so many of my years accepting that this is supposed to happen to me when actually it's it's not because I as a human being I as a person haven't done anything irrespective of what my skin color is I haven't done anything lived experience is best understood and gained from direct face-to-face interaction rather than through a technological medium 
as it's easy to lose the emotional influence experiences have when you're just looking at a face on a screen or listening to a voice on a computer. Having the person in front of you makes them harder to ignore. However, hearing examples of lived experience through mediums such as this one helps you to begin to appreciate what lived experience is and how it can be hugely beneficial to understanding Black Britain. It's important to note that no one black person's lived experience should be considered the experience of every black person, and no one ethnicity can speak for all. One thing I can say though, I've been fortunate, I haven't uh, experienced much racism on the streets in, on the, in the sense that I haven't been stopped and searched or anything like that. I've had friends who've gone through that, and again, with most of my friends, we, we tend to go with the school of thought that just comply and let it pass. It's their world. Our world is back on with Zim. But it's, it's a sad existence because we've become British and we are British and we really don't want to live a life like that. But I guess you just have to learn to accept it. Leaving school, I, I um, then endured more from the legal system, which was the police. I was stopped a few times. Thankfully, I've never been searched. Um, but I just remember one incident where I was in my neighbourhood, literally not even a five minute walk from my house. And um, I got stopped by the police and they were doing their usuals. They tried to tell me why they wanted to stop and question me. And um, they said, it's just a random search. There's been a series of burglaries in this area. So we're just doing a random questioning on anyone. I was like, OK. And I, and. At this time, I started to wisen up in life. So I thought I'll give them their space before I speak. And um, they were doing all the questions. What are you doing in this area? I says, I live in this area. And I looked back on it and I thought they will use their powers to try and overpower wrong. If you're going to undertake listening and learning through shared experiences, you need to have a proportionate and varied amount of experiences to understand the common themes. But also to have in the back of your head at all times that the experience they've just shared with you is absolutely not the worst one they have. Here we experience how microaggressions and gaslighting are commonplace in a black person's career, causing not only self-doubt, but also how complex the issue of reporting and explaining microaggressions can be. Early in my career in law, I had been approached by an agency to go for a junior position for a firm who based in Essex. I went to the interview. As soon as I walked into reception, the lady said to me, oh, you're Mr Townsend. OK, um, if you take a seat. Bit weird, but fine, sat down. Um, called through for the interview, walked to the room, there was a table with two women at each end and a man in the middle. They looked up at me and just stared for a bit, then looked at each other. I walked over to the seat, I sat down, and the gentleman basically said, or he actually did say, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Tanzer, for wasting your time. We've actually just filled the position this morning. I do apologise, and I, and I hope you didn't have to travel too far, but I do thank you for coming down. And... Again, I apologise if I wasted your time. Fine. Okay. No, it's fine. I hope the position went well. So I got up, left, went out. And then I saw another guy sitting in the reception. Didn't think anything of it. Walked out at the train station. 
waiting for the train. I think I missed my first train. And then I noticed the same guy and I didn't say anything to him. Got on the train. He got on the train. We sat in the train and we weren't sitting too far. I just thought I'd ask. So I went up to him and I said, oh, was you at um, that firm? Just He said, yeah, yeah, I went for a job interview. And I said, oh, how'd it go? And he said, oh, it went fine. It wasn't too quick. But they said they'd get in contact with me because they haven't filled it yet. You know, hopefully I would hear from them the next day. That was it. I didn't say anything to him. I left it at that. But we know why they didn't give me the job. On every occasion, there has been someone that's had to make a comment. You know why you got that, don't you? You know why you got that? And I wasn't the person who would be able to defend myself at that point. So at times it would be me going back home, having that on my head, thinking, you know why you got that? And what those sort of microaggressions can do to some people is make them think less of themselves. So I would go home and thinking, why did I get that? Is it because I am just a token black guy and they wanted to put me for in on their list? Um, and it made me feel inadequate to begin with until I really says, no, Simon, take a stop check and look at why you got that promotion. You were the best person for that job. And that's all it came down to. So when that's happened in my latter promotions, I've been able to speak up and say, I got that because of my experience. I got that because of my standards. I got that because I was the best person for the job at that time. Unfortunately, um, the way I found some of my white colleagues deal with it by twisting the tables and now I'm the aggressor. This is a problem that we have um, when you, you speak out against wrong. It's turn the tables, turn the mirror back onto the victim. And now the victim is the aggressor. I was called aggressive for a, a very polite response that I gave to someone um, who was outright racist. The common themes between experiences are clearer to see when they are shared in a group setting. In this environment, we can empower one another to come forward and share or shine a different light on similar occurrences. The whole being ghastly, how Simon is, where people will just turn, like, turn it that it makes it look like you are being the one that is um the aggressor for me what that worries me so much because as well with yes with being the size that i am it's easy to quickly switch it up and make it look like verbally and physically that i'm being intimidating that i'm being the aggressor and that's that's what scares me that i can't it's so difficult for us to actually get our point across in a manner which we want to get it across but without it looking like we were being aggressive it's so it's just this whole where where do you sit with it and then it makes you think feel like well i just don't want to say nothing at all because if i don't say nothing then we won't have any of these issues but then if you don't say anything nothing changes and we're still where we are and then this will just swing back around again in a few years but we haven't actually got anywhere it's almost like a whole one step forward one and a half steps back with it sometimes or just one step forward one step back sometimes it's so so difficult so difficult i don't just narrate even i have a lived experience and a point of view
it's almost that as soon as we speak up we get labeled as taking things too far and stuff and that to me just that's just putting us into another stereotype again you speak up and i've had it myself where i've been told my tone is aggressive my approach to this issue is aggressive and that to me just feels like i'm just being stereotyped into because i'm black i must be aggressive about these kinds of things and i can't just come to you and say as a person i'm hurt i'm upset and i'm offended that someone else has taken it upon themselves to to treat me in this way or to describe me as something that i'm not and yet because i'm complaining about it i'm aggressive like how does that work take this example from matondo who, excited to arrive in his new life in the UK, soon became despondent as a result of his lived experience of British overt racism. Being new around the country, language barrier was there. So people, they wouldn't necessarily take account as to what you're saying. Then growing up, we're seeing it more predominantly because you're learning more about the racism, you're knowing the language and you're knowing things in the country and you're like, wow. These people really don't like me around here. They'll be like, they'll be saying the N word to you, for example, or saying, you know, you're black, you're black this, you know, we can't take you into account. And I've, I've had that. And I've heard people say, you know, words discreetly towards me. And, you know, those times there, especially, it, it put you off integrating into the society because you thought, wow, what am I doing here? And these people are doing this to me. Being racially abused by people from the, the wealthy class, saying like, such as, you know, the, the n-word and black this and i'm like whoa and it's, it's it's so heartbreaking because some of the words i've been called where i thought i expect better from you racism is heartbreaking it's awful you know it puts you down and it puts you at a position where you're contemplating do i want to be here episode two taught us that most racism is subtle one thing lived experience lets us understand is the true extent of abuse and how subtle attacks can be just as damaging, if not more so, to a person's mental well-being. People tend to seem to think I look like somebody who's currently in that public eye at the time. So so I guarantee you, when Anthony Joshua fights Tyson Fury, I'll probably get at least three times, either in the few days leading up to his next fight, you look like Anthony Joshua, you look like Anthony Joshua, you look like... Because he is the one that's in the public eye, so it must mean that I all of a sudden look like him. And then that will transform the next time someone famous and black comes into the public eye for whatever reason, you look like this person, you look like this person. So I think it's a lot more subtle in the sense of not necessarily getting for me not necessarily getting the direct abuse but getting uh these little snide comments which are just unnecessary unwarranted and they are to to a degree with the fact that i get it so much hurtful like the, the sheer volume of it it then begins to hit home like how people cannot associate you as yourself, they have to associate you as somebody else or associate you as what they think you should be, which is absolutely ridiculous. I am my own person. I know who I am and I'm demonstrating to you who I am. But you're so disassociated with me as a person that you would rather see me as what you think I should be. And that, for me, is where racism is at now, like that level of subtlety, that subtle manipulation.
So yeah, that's what I'm experiencing these days. Imagine living in a world where your accent as well as your skin colour means your intellectuality and your reality are erased on a daily basis as you voice your expertise to those around you and how being subjected to this repeated behaviour embeds a feeling of being dominated. Oh, slightly uh, better accent or, you know, different English and, you know, it sounds exactly the same, the point is exactly the same and, yeah, everyone within that room saying, oh, good valid point, well done, you know, they get all the validation and all the, yes, that's a great point, um, well done for thinking that. And you ask yourself, but I just said the exact same thing. How come the other person has said it and they've got all this validation and thumbs up, but when you said it, it was as if you actually didn't say anything. That's the kind of racism I say I experience on a sort of, you know, daily basis or on a routine basis. You just learn to live with it. You just learn to accept it. It is what it is. You know, it's 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 not your world. It's their world. So it's what it is. These experiences are traumatic. They carry with them a huge detriment. And just by asking someone to recall the experiences, you open them up to reliving the massive traumas of the encounters they've been through. And so you should always, always, always have support on offer to people who are willing to impart these excerpts of their lives. In the world of commerce and business, it's really important to introduce a human element into discussions around race equality and not look at it solely from a corporate or institutional view of incomplete or unreliable data sets. Traditionally, most workplace staff surveys tend to look and sound the same. All look at the issues around race as a measurement in some part, but few tend to ask the correct questions those questions that are needed to gain a specific insight into the areas requiring the most improvement. So for me, definitely it's a no-go zone. No, you know, no one should be felt or be left feeling uh, in that kind of manner and no one should be feeling it. So we need to try and find ways how we can, you know, promote non-racism society, non-racism, you know, in the healthcare and providing, you know, an an all-unity You know, we all need to be together. We're all humans at the end of the day, no matter our skin colour. Almost all permit a huge amount of ambiguous answering that gives companies no comprehension of how the respondent feels as a result of their individual experiences. Which means that this traditional, one very large size fits all approach categorically doesn't work. Yes, we can gain some data from it, but the reliability and the credibility is far less than is needed to make the bold claims that we hear of being truly inclusive employers or making huge end roads into improving equality and diversity around race. Another red flag is the percentile of respondents to these staff surveys. Of the sectors that report nationally, i.e. the police, fire and NHS, we can see that globally, Across the NHS, the response rate is around about 47%. In the police, it has an average of 38%. And from the information I could find, the fire brigade appears to have the highest rate of respondents, but this is still only on average 61%. Which means a huge amount of voices are not heard, not considered, and this is all often as a result of fear and mistrust. Many black colleagues don't trust the anonymity of the surveys or fear reprisal for sharing views of the organisation's performance. 
my my sort of mentality on like I completely I completely agree with regards to the whole well I don't know if what I say in this space where you listen to what I, what I gotta say I don't know how this is gonna be spun or used out of potentially out of context where where I'm not there kind of thing and what what sort of comeback or ramification is going to come from it and I think that's that goes with a lot of things in general that's why people don't want to do star surveys that's why people don't want to get involved we're happy to sit and moan about stuff but then when it comes to actually discussing it with somebody who may potentially be able to make a change we just don't do it because we're like oh I don't don't know because this could land me in hot water here these mistrust and fear factors single-handedly reduce the reliability of data we see shared in surveys. Because of these fears, we can't see just how ingrained systemic and institutional racism is that affects a person's lived experience, both from a societal and a commercial view. That's not to say that if we improve the response, it would all be doom and gloom. Not everyone has a negative experience, but we know with a degree of certainty that the negative almost definitely outweighs the positive. So we need to be seriously asking, what about the greater than 50%? What is it that we don't know that they have to say? We need to ask the right questions and we need to utilize the nuclear power of lived experience because lived experience is a tool that can be converted into data. It can be transformed to provide a visual representation of the positive and negative aspects of community and working life. Many experience surveys involving a small lived experience element are already in use in numerous areas, such as stroke rehabilitation, community safety projects, and more recently around the impact of COVID-19. But these, like staff surveys, were recently described as looking at the issues in a metaphorical black or white approach, where black is the external influences and white is the internal influences, but never the twain shall meet. By using this approach of either or and not together, black and white, there is always an area that is missed or not quite properly identified. An area where we know an entity exists, but it isn't discernible enough for us to feel like we really need to pay proper attention to it. Instead, what we do is we preclude it we deny its existence and we work round it, rather than acknowledging and working through it. It's a bit like taking a 20 mile detour to avoid a puddle right in front of you because you don't know which way to hold the ruler to test its depth. It's for this reason that diversity and inclusion work has not really progressed over the last decade or so, and the reason that the race issue is repetitive and recurring in predictable patterns. By ignoring this key area, you will only ever have two-thirds of the picture. This incompleteness is as frustrating as it gets for activists, because we know there's more. But we don't have the tools, other than our voices and our experiences, or the cooperation, to showcase its importance. Recently, Shiron Enkotaria and Hira Ali defined this missing piece as the grey area the bit in between, but also a part of the black and white. Using the definition of the term, that being an ill-defined area, they set up a company that sought to find a way they could use these lived experiences and turn them into quantifiable data. By asking the right questions, 
they aim to redefine the configuration of power into an equal balance between staff and bosses by granting a platform to minorities in any position for their voice to be heard and valued. In doing so, they allowed everyone to understand and navigate the grey area, using the unique view and insights of us as people of ethnic heritage as the key to the cipher. This empowerment of unlocking voices and allowing lived experience to become a crucial part in the crusade to achieve equity and inclusion provides support for employees and employers. For employees, it is supporting having their experiences shared and taken seriously. For the employers, it's supporting comprehending that the grey area means asking those questions for which the answers are not easy to hear. They're not heartwarming, they're not comfortable, that you used to see in bias survey questioning routinely used to date. No matter where you sit in the equality and diversity arena, be it just having an interest in others, as an equality lead, working in or heading up HR departments, or running whole organisations, until you appreciate the explicit importance of lived experience and the grey area, you will never correctly understand what is inclusion. And despite your absolute best efforts, you will only see minimal improvement around diversity and equality in race, or any other area. As we visit the seven pillars, those with a keen ear will have heard all too clearly how dominance of black people takes place while their intellectuality, reality and humanity are repeatedly erased through microaggressions and gaslighting. Hearing how people are minimised as they strive to progress in life by comments such as, well you know why you got that, and the inference of tokenism shows how management and containment of a black person doesn't have to come from those in managerial or power positions, it can come from the average Joe stood next to you. These lived experiences that I urge you to seek out are more than folk stories. They are the reality of the people speaking them. There is an injustice in society that these haven't been taken more seriously throughout our recent history. But we are turning the tide. Just this week in the Democratic US elections, we've paid witness to history taking place as Kamala Harris became the first woman to take the office of US Vice President-elect. But more importantly, the first black woman of African and Indian heritage to do so. It took 200 years for the US to achieve this kind of inclusion. But they did it. They found justice in democracy. It doesn't erode the unfortunate pasts, but it symbolises a new way forward that from you and I, as Seamus Heaney wrote, justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. Human beings suffer. They torture one another. They get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully write the wrong inflicted and endured. History says... Don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the long-forward tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. 
Believe in miracles and healing wells. Call miracles self-healing and utter self-revealing. Double take of feeling. If there is a fire in the mountain or lightning in a storm and God speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of a new life at its turn. It means once in a lifetime that justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. Join me for episode four, How Racism Affects Us.